0: Sometimes, the fabric of our world thins out and people slip through either from another dimension or into one. That's what some people think and others even claim it has happened to them. Are they just full of it? Maybe. We'll look at some old cases like the Green Children of Wolpit and some more modern ones as well, visiting several countries, Mormon mythology, and the very first internet conspiracy theory ever. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Don't forget that you can subscribe to this podcast. And if you like what we do, donate via our Buy Me a Coffee page. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to... The Conspiracy Clearinghouse The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode, we'll examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in The Clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. It's, it's not, not easy, easy being, being green. green as Kermit the Frog once sang. Sometime during the harvest time, when Stephen was king of England, so between 1135 and 1154 CE, two children showed up one day in the Suffolk town of Woolpit, spelled Woolpit, but pronounced Woolpit because, you know, the English. They were normal enough, except they both had green skin and wore unusual clothes. Later, it was discovered they spoke some unknown language and refused to eat anything other than fava beans raw. They were taken in by Sir Richard de Calne, who lived in a large house six miles north of town. Over time they learned to eat other food, and then their color faded to something a bit more Caucasian. But then the boy fell ill and died, shortly after both of them were baptized in the Christian faith, while the girl went on to learn English, being called Agnes by the locals. The townspeople then learned the two had been siblings and had come from some place called Saint Martin's Land, where it was always twilight and everything was green the brother and sister had been out agnes told them trying to retrieve a family cow that had wandered into a cave when they heard a sudden loud noise possibly church bells from the town of bury st edmunds about seven kilometers to the west thought one chronicler they followed the sound and emerged from another opening in the cave but then fell into a wolf pit the name of the town Woolpit comes from the pits dug there to trap wolves so wolf pit became Woolpit, became became wool that's what she said, though she was thought to be a bit, quote, wanton in her ways by the strict folk of Woolpit, so perhaps what she said should be taken with a grain of salt. The girl grew up becoming a servant in Richard DeCollins' house, naturally. Then finally moved away to the town of Kings Lynn, about 50 miles north, where she met Richard Barre, an ambassador for Henry II Plantagenet, who had become king by this time, and the two got married. It's said that there are still people in the area today who are descendants of Agnes and Mr. Barre. Many historians believe they were probably Flemish children living in the town of Fornham-St. Martin, about 11 miles to the northwest. A battle had taken place there, and most of the Flemish immigrants were killed. The two children, now orphaned, probably got lost, terrified, wandered through Thetford Forest, which their traumatized and exhausted minds confused with the cave system, and then ended up in Woolpit with their unusual clothes and speaking Flemish. But why were they green? Well, there was a dietary deficiency back then that caused the skin to turn green, known as green sickness, which might have been a type of anemia, which would have been cured the moment they got proper nutrients flowing through their bodies. It's a great folk story and one with many features in other stories throughout England. Perhaps there really was some sort of real story about Flemish children that got morphed into this one over time with the retelling, and maybe it was just a total fabrication. Or maybe, think some modern people who hear of this tale, the two came from an underground world, or were maybe even off-world aliens. Aliens. Or maybe they had slipped into our world from a parallel world, another dimension, if you will. The green children of Wolpit would go on to inspire some woo-woo folks, writers of fiction, and even some singers and musicians. And for some people, this is just one of the earliest examples of people who may have crossed over into our world from another one. There is no map map, and a a compass compass wouldn't wouldn't help help at at all. That's a line from the Bjork song, Human Behavior. When a story is over 700 years old, it takes on the gloss of folklore or legend. But people have been mysteriously showing up in more modern times as well. Take 19th century Germany. And no, I'm not talking about the weird case of Kaspar Hauser, which was talked about at length in a previous episode devoted entire to him, but a case that happened a couple of decades after that, the odd tale of Jofar Voren from the land of Luxaria. One day in 1850, a man wandered into the town of Lebus, about 10 kilometers north of frankfurt on de Oder, which is right near what's now the border between Germany and Poland, about 90 kilometers east of Berlin. He seemed disoriented and confused as to where he was. He spoke German, but it was a weird old dialect of the language. The authorities asked him to account for himself, and he told them his name was Jofar Vorin, and he came from a place called Laxaria, part of the northern continent of Sacria, which is separated from Europe by a vast ocean. He said he'd set out on a ship to find his lost brother, but had been shipwrecked. He had no idea how he ended up in this area so far from the sea, being disoriented after his wreck. They showed him maps and asked him to show them where this Sicaria place was. He was confused when he saw the maps because it wasn't on there. He said where Greenland was on their map is where Sicaria should be, but Sicaria was much larger than Greenland. Likewise, he couldn't find other landmasses that he also knew of, named Aflar, Astar, Auslar, and Oiplar. Maybe it was the antiquated German he was speaking that was so confusing and why his answers seemed to be so nonsensical, so they asked him to write things down. He did so, but in a totally unknown language. He explained that this was Laxarian. He could also speak and write in another language called Abramian. This being 19th century Germany, they of course asked about his religion, which he said was called Ispatian, and after they all compared notes, it turned out his religion was eerily similar to Christianity, but with some key differences. The tale he told was quite consistent, so academics came by to question him further. It seemed like people believed him, so he was dispatched to Berlin for more in-depth study, but he never made it there, vanishing along the way. One version of the story, according to a video on YouTube by Matthew Santoro, is that while going through some woods, he freaked out and jumped out of the carriage, fleeing into the trees and was never found or seen again. This is all written about quite seriously in newspapers and even journals for a couple of years. Some thought the lands he talked about maybe corresponded to the continents on our world. Aflar is Africa, Astar is Asia, Auslar is Australasia, and Uplar is Europe. His own land of Lexaria doesn't really mean much to us, but the larger land it was part of was called Sakaria, which brought to mind, in some people's minds, the Scythians, a people along the northern Black and Caspian Sea about 2,500 years ago who were said to come from a land called Saka. They later migrated west and settled northern Europe, possibly lending their name to the word Saxon. Plus, that other language he spoke, Abramian, made people think of Abraham, perhaps hinting at some sort of crossover with our own Middle Eastern region. Again, this was all considered to be a very real thing at the time. A police inspector named Leibouf, who had been escorting Jofar to Berlin, said that he thought the mysterious man was, quote, a being from another world. Modern esotericists who look into this story think it could be a case of either a person crossing over from a parallel version of our world and or a parallel timeline that diverged from ours around the time of the Scythians. The website Oscurban Legend Wikia categorizes this story as either one of an interdimensional being or something they call Remens, R E M E N S, but I cannot seem to find what Remens means. One of the more famous cases occurred a little over 100 years later, this time in Tokyo. A man stepped off a plane at Tokyo International Airport in July 1954 and handed over his passport to be stamped. He had an unusual name, Yanansfer Behoderik. The officials were puzzled because the passport seemed to have been issued from a city called Tamanrosset in a country called Taurid. Where on earth were these places? Further questioning revealed the man had bills from several European countries on him. He was well-dressed and well-behaved, spoke fluent Japanese, even though he was Caucasian, and also spoke French. He said his country, Taurid, was a small nation between France and Spain. Oh, you mean Andorra, they said, and showed him a map. Well, the man replied, yes, that is where his country is, but he'd never heard of a place called Andorra. He knew it as a land called Taured, which it had been called for more than a thousand years. In addition to his Taured passport, he also had a driving license from there, plus bank statements, and other documents in his briefcase. He also said he'd traveled from Torrid to Japan twice in the last five years on business and had never had any problems before, so why was he having them now? They tried to verify his bank account, but it didn't exist. They tried calling his employer, but the company didn't exist. While this was certainly a puzzle and it was getting late, so they had him escorted to a hotel to continue questioning him in the morning. The hotel room was several floors up in a high-rise building, and a guard was stationed outside the door. Yet in the morning, when they entered the room, he had vanished. When the police went back to the airport to tell the officials there that they'd somehow lost him, they discovered that all the man's documents, which had been put into the locked security room, had also vanished. Dozens of people remembered interacting with him, but there was no physical evidence to prove their stories." A memified version of this story started jumping around on Facebook a few years ago, generating likes and comments, and some folks on TikTok have recently discovered this strange story and speculated that maybe he had been some kind of a spy of some sort. But the main speculation has been that this is the clearest proof ever that a person from a parallel Earth somehow got stuck in our own world for a short period of time. However, it would seem that this tale of the man from Tored is itself a parallel version of an actual story that took place in October 1959, not July 1954. In October 59, a man named John Zegras arrived at Tokyo Airport with his Korean wife in tow. He had a strangely large passport the size of a magazine written in an Arabic-looking script that he said was called Negus Habesian. It had several visa stamps in it, including one issued for Japan, which came from the Interchange Association in Taipei, which is the capital of Taiwan. And that association stood as a kind of unofficial embassy there because of the whole, you know, we can't recognize Taiwan as a country thing. Well, it was all pretty weird, but they let him pass because the visa seemed legit. While in the city, he tried to cash three checks for about $800 at the time at three separate locations, but his identification was suspect, so the police took a look. They ended up arresting him in early 1960, and the press wrote many stories about the so-called mystery man. He claimed he was ambassador for the country Negus Habes, which he said was just south of Ethiopia, and he had diplomatic immunity, and also he was a spy working for the Americans. However, there is no such country called Negus Habes, and the language on his ID was found to have been completely made up. While the police had him in custody, trying to sort out fact from fiction, he wove a colorful tale indeed. He said he'd been born in the U.S., then his family moved to Britain, then Czechoslovakia, and finally Germany, where he went to high school. He joined the RAF as a pilot during World War II, was shot down, and captured by the Germans. After the war, he went to South America and then South Korea, where he got involved with American intelligence services, mainly working as a pilot in missions to Thailand and Vietnam, before being reassigned to the United Arab Republic. This was a combination of Syria and Egypt that existed from 1958 to 1971. The Arabs sent him to the country of Negus Habis and then to Japan to recruit people for the Arab Republic. None of his documents were legitimate, however, and again, this Negus Habis country is totally made up. So, he spent a year in jail for fraud and tried to cut his wrists in the courtroom when he found out about the sentence. When he got out of jail a year later, he was deported to Hong Kong, which was still British at the time, and his wife had been deported to South Korea, where she was from. Now, this is a weird enough story all on its own. A Canadian newspaper wrote about it with some additions, perhaps supplied by Zegris himself, like that he was a naturalized Ethiopian citizen and a spy working for Egypt's Colonel Nasser. British barrister Robert Matthew used the case to argue to the House of Commons that passports really are not a very secure method at all and an alternative should be developed. Jacques Bergier who would later write The Morning of the Magicians, which sort of kicked off a modern-day interest in the mystical substance known as the Vril, talked about in a previous episode, as well as engendering much of what we would today call New Age thinking, must have heard a version of this story and then added some of his own embellishments. He said that there had been a man arrested in Japan in 1954, so we got it wrong, it was 59, who had come from the land of Tared, which was between Sudan and Mauritania and included a good chunk of Algeria. But when the man went around telling people he was trying to buy weapons for the Arab Legion... They locked him away in a mental hospital. In the early 1980s, both Colin Wilson and John Grant took up this version of the tale, adding alterations of their own. Then a series of Japanese websites about the strange and occult world started putting the story online about a man from Tared with legit-looking paperwork who claimed his country was where Andorra is. Somehow, the tale had moved from Africa to Europe. Then it hit social media, made it onto various YouTube videos in that form, as well as Facebook posts, tweets, and so on. Who was this Froster really and what happened to him after he got out of jail? Nobody seems to know, but he almost certainly did not slip into another universe. He probably found his wife and the two of them went off to live somewhere, weaving a false tale of self-importance for small-scale gain. I wanna, I wanna be your boyfriend. boyfriend. That's a 1976 song by the Ramones. Then there's the 2008 case of Lorena Garcia Gordo, a college-educated 41-year-old Spanish woman who woke up on the morning of July 16th only to find that the sheets on her bed were not the same ones that she'd gone to sleep on the night before. They were a different pattern and material and color. Weird, right? Well, she had to get to work, so she went out to get in her car, but it was parked in the wrong space. She used to park in this space back when her boyfriend had been living with her, but since they'd broken up quite some time ago, she'd taken to parking in a different space, but now the car was back in that old space, also weird. She drove to the company she'd been working at for 20 years, only to find out that her office door did not have her name on it, somebody else's name was there. What was going on? Had they fired her? She pulled out her laptop down to the lobby, got on the Wi-Fi, which worked, and looked up the company directory. She was listed there, but in a different department under a different manager. It all seemed very strange indeed. Too much, in fact, and so she left, claiming she didn't feel well, and she went straight to a doctor to see if maybe somehow she'd been drugged or she was having a brain aneurysm or something else was wrong with her. She got a battery of tests, but they all came back negative, so she went home. Checking all her paperwork, she saw that everything was as it should be, right bank account number, right address on her driving license, bills, everything was correct. She went online to check news headlines, but the events of the past few days, according to these news articles, were exactly as she remembered them. She decided to call Augustine, a man who lived down the street who she'd been casually dating for about four months after her seven-year relationship with a man named Miguel had ended rather badly a year earlier but somebody else answered the phone, not Augustine, and said, no, sorry, there is no Augustine here, and no, there's no son of Augustine here either. Poor Lorena went around the apartment checking things, making sure everything was as she remembered it, but everything was all right. Then she opened one of the closets, and it was full of Miguel's clothes, her ex-boyfriend. She went into the bathroom and found the shampoo that he preferred and his shaving kit. What the actual actual F F was was going going on on here? Had she not actually broken up with Miguel and hallucinated Augustine and Augustine's son and other details of her life and job? She decided to go to a psychiatrist who told her that maybe she'd been experiencing a lot of stress and maybe that could explain the discrepancies between her memories and the evidence of her own eyes. She hired a private investigator to try and find Augustine or his son or anyone in his family. She called her own family, who told her, no, she had never broken up with Miguel. When Lorena asked about her sister's recent shoulder surgery, no one knew what she was talking about, including her sister. Sometime later, the private investigator had to tell her that he could find no trace of Augustine or anyone related to him. She became convinced that she'd gone to bed the night of July 15th in one universe, but woken up the next morning in another one. A parallel one with some crossover similarities, but several disturbing differences, like still living with an unwanted boyfriend. Interestingly, all versions of this story omit the one obvious element. What does Miguel say? Whenever you come across it, it always ends with some variant of, and she was stuck with a boyfriend she didn't want, but surely, if Miguel's stuff was there, that means he lived there, and surely they talked. There's no word on any of that. It all became public knowledge when Lorena herself posted the tale, along with a plea for anyone who might have some answers for her, in the comments section of a blog post about quantum superposition and multiple dimensions or worlds. But the paranormal and pseudoscience folks like this story speculating about divergent timelines, the many-worlds interpretation of quantum physics, references to the Mandela effect, also talked about in a previous episode, all with a healthy dose of science fiction entertainment tropes, and even the idea that maybe schizophrenics are living in two universes simultaneously, a notion that is based on absolutely nothing except pure speculation. Baby, Baby, you can can drive drive my my car. That's from the 1965 Beatles song, Drive My Car, the opening track on the album Rubber Soul. So far, we've looked at cases of potentially other dimensional folks pushing through into our world, but doors allow access both ways. And sometimes, someone from here ends up over there, often while driving one moonless night in 1972 four young women were driving back from a rodeo they'd gone to in nevada at the weekend returning to southern utah university a trip of about 90 miles through the desert shortly after crossing the state line they took a road through gandianton canyon the black asphalt changed to white concrete which didn't seem right so they started to turn around and head back to the main road but suddenly everything looked different Instead of desert, there were fields of grain and tall trees, and a large lake could be seen in the distance. Confused, they decided to stop at a roadside bar that they had not noticed before to ask directions, but they freaked out when they saw that the sign for this place was not in English or even in the Latin alphabet. One of the women screamed, and a mass of extremely tall humanoid beings poured out of the bar into the parking lot. They were not not human. human. Then four egg-shaped three-wheel vehicles shining bright lights from their roofs started coming at them down the road at high speed. The girls all panicked and hurried away, driving down the white concrete until the road once again became the familiar black tarmac they'd been on before. But they were going too fast and they crashed into a creek, blowing out three of their four tires and they were stuck. They spent an uneasy night in the car, then walked to Highway 56, where they flagged down a state trooper who did not believe their wild tale. A nice story, and one always told on the internet with lots and lots of details. But the fact is, there is no Gadianton Canyon. There is a Modena Canyon off Highway 56, but not Gadianton. So where did this name Gadianton come from? Well, according to Mormon mythology, this part of Utah was once inhabited by the Lamanites, which is what they call people of color, and Naphites, descendants of a group of people who had left Jerusalem in the 6th century BCE and somehow managed to settle in North America. Though the two tribes usually warred with each other, a few from each side got together to form an outlaw band of robbers who would waylay travelers. The leader was a Naphite named Gadianton, and so they were called the Gadianton Robbers. Their antics would eventually spark off a large-scale conflict between the tribes that ended with the Naphites destroyed. However, Mormon mythology says that this group of criminals also held some insights into what are called secret combinations, whatever that is. But some have speculated perhaps they knew about multiple universes and how to traverse the distance between them. As I said, there is a Modena Canyon and only Mormons would call it Gadianton. So maybe this whole thing is really just some sort of Latter-day Saints ghost story. Or the students crashed their car because they weren't paying attention and then made up a tale that fit with their belief system. There is no bar in the area and it is telling that this establishment that they go to where the strange people and the egg-shaped three-wheeled cars come after them is always described as a tavern, which is a rather old-fashioned word. And yet, The state trooper said he found the tire tracks from the women's car ended abruptly about 200 meters, 600 feet into the desert, and yet the crashed car itself was more than two miles away. How did that happen? Maybe they had shifted into an alternate version of our world, just like they said. So maybe the story is not a myth after all, but an actual account of actual history and somehow these four students stumbled into another realm, a dimension where the Nephites still live and attack those foolhardy enough to stray into their path. It also might be noteworthy that the California startup Aptera has just announced their new solar-powered cars, which will start rolling out later this year, and these are kind of egg-shaped and have three wheels. So maybe the students slipped through a time tunnel into the future, or an alternate future where Mormon myth becomes reality. Makes Makes you think think, think, dane. Late at night on November 9th, 1986, Spaniard Pedro Olivia Ramirez was driving from the Andalusian city of Sevilla to Alacala de Guadaira, a half hour or so journey that he had taken many times. But as he rounded a curve on the A92, it was suddenly a six-lane highway going straight into the distance. Also, the landscape was unfamiliar, and the buildings around were strangely designed. All of the other cars on the road were similarly off. They were all white or beige. They all had narrow black rectangles instead of license plates. They were all unfamiliar brands, and yet also all seemed somehow old-fashioned, and they all passed him at exactly eight-minute intervals. He found himself getting uncomfortably hot and heard what sounded like a choir singing in the distance. The singing got louder, and one of the voices differentiated itself from the background and told him that he had been transported to another dimension. He drove on for an hour or more and finally saw an exit on the left instead of the right with signs for Sevilla, Malaga, and Alcala. He took the one towards Sevilla, and suddenly the road ended, and he was in front of his house in Alcala. Three hours had passed, and he'd used enough petrol for a 200-kilometer journey. Puzzled, he drove back to the A92 to see if he could see this strange place again, but everything was back to normal. He spent some months trying to get to the bottom of what had happened to him, but found no answers. what's with all this old stuff if people really are breaking through the interdimensional membrane surely there are more modern stories well i'm glad you said that in 2006 californian carol chase mcelhenney was driving back to san bernardino where she lived from the small city of paris where she'd taken her sheepdog to a dog show trips about 30 minutes on highway 215 and passes through riverside where she'd grown up She thought it might be nice to see her old childhood home and stomping grounds, and so she took the exit. But after a couple of blocks, she realized that almost nothing looked familiar. (laughs) Oh, well, she must have taken the wrong exit and was in some other town, not Riverside, maybe Grand Terrace or High Grove. And yet, there were some familiar things and signs and buildings that seemed to indicate that, no, no, she was in Riverside. She drove on, but could not find her old home. She went to see her grandparents' grave, but the cemetery wasn't there. Instead, it was just an overgrown, empty lot. It was all very confusing, since some familiar things were still there, like her old middle school, but it was all weird and uncomfortable. Most of the buildings were run down, covered in graffiti. Several businesses on the main drag were closed and boarded up. Some very famous larger buildings like the massive Mission Inn were simply gone, and the people walking around on the streets also seemed to give off a sinister vibe that made her wary of talking to any of them. Without getting out of her car, she got back on the highway and returned home to San Bernardino. A few years later, she went back to Riverside for her father's funeral and saw that everything was back to normal. She later became convinced that she had somehow traveled to a parallel version of the city, one where Riverside had become a darker, more hostile, and run-down place. Sort of a Latter-day Bedford Falls from It's a Wonderful Life kind of a thing. Carol talked at UFO conferences and other paranormal fan events and gave an interview to Jason Offutt for his Mysterious Universe podcast. The story might also have got further traction from the blog of one Janet Smith, PhD called Eternal Gateways, which discusses, quote, Old Testament, women in the church and home, afterlife experiences, and the paranormal. Smith, PhD, also wrote a book about proof that ancient Israel had connections to immortality, which I don't even know what that means, but she says it's all quite clear in Psalm 49, which is the one about people being sheep and death is their shepherd. She also writes about UFOs. Miss Smith met Carol at a Sacramento MUFON conference and they chatted about Carol's slight psychic powers, that she'd had hypnotic regression, and that she and her husband had both died in World War II and their past lives and the like. Carol's brother also used to see odd supernatural beings outside his window when he was a child and later became obsessed with UFOs. After their talk, Carol sent Janet an email describing her near-death experience she'd had two years after her weird riverside dimension slip experience. She'd had an aneurysm, slipped into a coma, and saw visions of Jesus banishing a devil-like creature. After she came out of the coma, she started seeing shadow people everywhere. She'd first heard of the shadow people on the infamous radio show Coast to Coast AM, hosted by Art Bell, who believed absolutely everybody who came on his show, no matter what they claimed. Some of his guests talk about the shadow people, seen all through North America going back to the 1990s in Massachusetts, when a young girl saw a vaguely human-shaped shadow on the wall that then detached itself from the wall and drifted around her bedroom. Many others have claimed to see these entities as well, usually children of the witnesses, and some people think they are trans-dimensional beings who invade our world from time to time, probably for not very good reasons, because they're, you know, scary. And, of course, there's a story of James Richards, not his real name, who claims that he tripped and hit his head in Northern California's Del Puerto Canyon, knocking himself unconscious, and when he came to, he was in a room with a man he didn't know who called himself Jonas. Jonas told James that he'd been pulled into a parallel earth, one in which the Beatles were still together and making music. Before being sent back to our world, James grabbed a copy of a tape called Everyday Chemistry, which contained all new Beatles songs, and once back home, he uploaded that to his website. This story is talked about in much more detail in our very first episode ever, all about conspiracy theories involving the Beatles. The album turned out to be clever remixes of old Beatles songs and later songs by Beatles members in their solo careers, and the whole story was probably some kind of narrative art project. And yet, some people on the interweb seem to believe this extraordinary tale. Or at least they claim to believe it. You can can leave leave your your hat 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 on. That's a 1972 song by Joe Cocker. The internet almost seems designed to spread ideas, even if they are inaccurate or purposely fabricated. The internet doesn't care, it just spreads. Sometimes untruths are to cause disruption and sometimes it's all in the name of fun. Like in the case of Ong's Hat, what many people call the very first internet conspiracy theory. In the Pine Barrens region of New Jersey, just off County Road 644, there's a tiny town called Ong's Hat. Most likely, the name comes from an overnight shelter once built by a merchant family in the area, whose last name was Ong, called Ong's Hut, which then morphed into Ong's hat over time. Hat, hut, whatever, it's a pretty small place. Though in the middle of the 19th century, it had quite a bit of life and had grown into a real village. But by the first decade of the 20th century, it's thought only seven people lived there. There's another local story about a Polish couple who moved here in that decade named Chininski, who just up and disappeared one day. In 1917, some hunters found a female skeleton and local police speculated that maybe Mr. Chininsky had killed his wife and that the skeleton was probably her and then he had legged it. The county sheriff used to keep the skull of this gruesome find on his desk as a reminder of a case unsolved. A few years later in 1925, a farmer heading home found two dead men in a car blocking the road and another body in the woods near the road. They were all from eastern Pennsylvania, about 80 miles to the northwest, and it turned out they were part of a bootlegging gang who'd apparently run afoul of a larger gang of mobsters. When a local writer visited the place in 1936 for a book titled Forgotten Towns of Southern New Jersey, he found only a single resident, a 79-year-old former Chicago man who'd moved there some years ago before taking up farming. Then, in 1978, a fellow named Wally Ford bought 200 acres around Ong's Hat, setting up the Moorish Science Ashram for people to spend time in, discussing politics, the paranormal, spirituality, and take some mind-altering drugs. Sort of a commune, but with an academic bent. Some scientists from Princeton University, about 30 miles to the north, started hanging out there, led by the brilliant but unorthodox Dobbs Twins. The twins decided it might be possible using ideas from quantum mechanics and the emerging field of chaos physics to travel to nearby dimensions. They built a type of sensory deprivation chamber they called the egg to see if they could detect the moment when a wave became a particle through observation. One day, a volunteer was in the egg and then disappeared for seven minutes before reappearing. The young man came out and excitedly told the others he'd just been to another version of Earth, which was identical to our own, except that humans had never evolved there. It was a pristine paradise. Well, that's cool, they thought, and conducted many more experience traveling to Earth-2, let's call it, many times. But then the military got wind of what they were up to, so they all decamped en masse to Earth-2, taking all of the ashram buildings with them except one house where the doorway between the two worlds still sits. And there they and their descendants still live, returning here to Earth-1 only when they need supplies. People who go to Ongshad and try and find the missing scientists either never find anything or fall prey to traps the interdimensional travelers have left for the unwary. This story comes to us from a book titled The Inconabla Papers, Ong's Hat, and Other Gateways to New Dimensions, written by author and transmedia artist Joseph Matheny. He's worked with Robert Anton Wilson, produced a film about temporary autonomous zones, and is considered one of the pioneers of what we now call alternate reality games, or ARGs. In fact, the whole Ong's Hat tale seems to be the very first ARG ever, first appearing piecemeal as an online mystery game back in the earliest days of the internet when it was 100% text-based. He'd chosen the Pine Barrens area as the setting for his interactive game because it had long been mysterious. The famous Jersey Devil lives in Pine Barrens, as does the equally mysterious Black Dog, a canine apparition that may trace its origins back to when the area was a pirate haven. Pine Barrens is also thought to be the resting place of the lost treasure of the famed pirate Captain Kidd. There were several ghosts in the area as well, like the black doctor, an African-American medical ghost, the white stag, a ghostly deer that brings good luck, and the golden-haired girl, a ghost who stares out to sea, waiting for her lover to return. Some say the Jersey devil sits with her sometimes and is in love with her. So, there's a great area for this tale of Ong's Hat, which is a real place, though by the 1980s it was totally abandoned. Matheny was a creative guy, and his Ong's Hat story was eagerly embraced by internet denizens who came across it. A pamphlet got written, maybe by Matheny, maybe by a fan, titled "Ong's Hat: Gateway to the Dimensions!" exclamation point, purporting to have been published by the Institute of Chaos Studies and Moorish Science Ashram. New stories, supposedly written by survivors of a nighttime black ops raid, that most of the scientists barely escaped by just getting through the interdimensional portal. Reports of strange occurrences, synchronicities, and disappearances in the area. An unusual amount of interest from military folks at a base 10 miles away to the north. Word of mouth added to the legend, and some people at UC Berkeley and other notorious left-wing bastions of thought and experimentation added their own additions to this and similar stories. By the time of the early 1990s, the internet was becoming accessible to more than just academics, and it just seemed natural that when the World Wide Web showed up in 1993, Ong's Hat content would be among the first things posted there. Pretty soon, there were posts in online bulletin boards and in forums about people experiencing strange things after just reading about the events at Ong's Hat. Odd dreams, weird coincidences, hallucinations, and even shifts in reality. Now, some of this content was created by people continuing the game that Joseph Matheny had created, but some of the content was by people who were not in on the joke. These people didn't know it was a game, didn't understand the references, the Lovecraftian overtones, the ideas out of Philip K. Dick, the joke about the Dobbs twins, which obviously comes from the Church of the Subgenius, the incorporation of elements from Montauk Project legends and so forth. No, these people were claiming that the stories they were telling actually happened to them, so they were either trolling or maybe a little bit unbalanced and actually believed this stuff at least a little bit. As the web grew more popular and more people came across the Ong's Hat tale, the conspiracy-minded got a hold of it and it took off, at least in some chat rooms. Many people started wondering "Of hey, you know what, maybe this whole thing is real or at least partly real and the whole ARG is just a cover story. Matheny and his friends also continued feeding the fire, creating more fake documents, writing more accounts, and websites started sprouting up on platforms like AngelFire, sometimes made by the core group and sometimes not. Fans and participants started calling themselves eggheads after the mysterious interdimensional device created by the Princeton scientists. Matheny and some of the other core co-creators like Peter Lamborn Wilson, who goes by the name Hakeem Bay and writes alt-consciousness stuff and also developed the idea of the temporary autonomous zone. Hippie physicist Nick Herbert and artist James Conline created more works on and offline. They also did radio views on things like Coast to Coast AM. They give talks and they were always walking the line between satire and seriousness, leaving some people confused as to whether they were telling the truth or not, which was kind of the point. But soon, Matheny started getting harassing communications, first online and through email, and then phone calls to his home. People started sleeping on his lawn, hoping to waylay him and demand some answers about the secrets of interdimensional travel. On one occasion, he had to chase a man off at gunpoint because the man had seemed completely unhinged and potentially dangerous in his increasingly strident demands for the secret to how to travel between worlds. Matheny finally wrote an online letter to the conspiracy community in 2001 saying that the Ong's Hat Project was now officially closed down. Thank you for playing. Fans who understood it was a game and saw its influence creep into popular culture like the 1999 hit low-budget film The Blair Witch Project, which also ran a promotional campaign that blurred the lines between fact and fiction, well, fans were disappointed. Paranormal guy Peter Moon said, quote, It doesn't really matter if it's a game or not a game, adding that the documents Matheny and Francie created were themselves certainly real enough and that was good enough for him. But others, maybe people who believe some or all of it, were downright angry shutting Shutting it down. down, hmm, down. hmm, More like closed off the disclosure. Who bought them off? Were they now stooges for the government or the New World Order? Matheny had called it a living book project that used elements from role-playing games, but then mapped those onto real-world locations. The internet-born writing genre Creepypasta took this torch and ran with it, almost always continuing to walk that fantasy reality line and engendering new urban legends like the Black-Eyed Children, talked about in a previous episode, and the Slender Man. But for those who took it all seriously, they were suddenly at sea, needing something equally mind-expanding to believe in. Some jump to this conspiracy or that one, while it has been argued that some of the commentators of the more, shall we say, unhinged people who encountered the Ong's Hat narrative would end up becoming perfect recruits for mindsets like Infowars, militia groups, and even the broad-in-scope QAnon suite of conspiracy theories that eventually came along. As wild as those narrative streams may seem to outsiders, they do give a sense of certainty in a world that is perhaps changing too quickly for some people. As Matheny himself later said, quote, not everybody can function with a level of elasticity in their reality. Matheny may have put Ong's hat up on the shelf, but his creative juices take him where they will, and later he would become part of the John Teeter time travel story that swept the internet. But that one will have to wait for another episode about time travel. This is only a brief overview of the Ong's Hat story. For a much, much more in-depth and very well-written account, see the article Ong's Hat, the Early Internet Conspiracy Game That Got Too Real by Jed Olbaum, which appeared on the Gizmodo website in February 2019. It runs through about 5,000 words, and it is very much worth reading. Link to it in the episode notes. The idea of an interdimensional multi-universe is very interesting. Unfortunately, we have no proof whatsoever that such a thing is even real, let alone how to travel between them. There is a very funny Wikivoyage joke article on interdimensional travel, understanding it, a brief overview of the many worlds interpretation, books you should read, how to maybe prepare yourself to travel between dimensions, different methods of doing so by magic, by sleep, by using big balloons like in The Wizard of Oz, and other rules including traffic rules and things that you should certainly do and see when in the other dimensions. Again link in the episode notes. These are all great stories, to be sure, and more than a few people seem to believe all are part of them. Websites devoted to things like this give off a distinctly Twilight Zone vibe, which I suspect is part of the appeal. As to the veracity of these tales, I shall leave that to your own conclusions and research. Are there multiple worlds? Maybe. As I said, some interpretations of quantum theory suggest that this could be the case, and we will dive into that pool in some future episode. For now, I leave you with these interdimensional stories, be they urban legends, creepypastas, hoaxes, outright lies, or even very complicated art projects. To misquote Rod Serling and his seminal television show, you're traveling traveling through another 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 dimension, 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 a dimension dimension not not only of sight and and sound, sound, but but of mind. mind. A journey journey into into a a wondrous land land whose boundaries boundaries are that of imagination. 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 That's the signpost signpost up up ahead, your next next stop, stop, The Conspiracy conspiracy Clearinghouse. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.